listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. as a beginning practitioner being so utterly confused with the idea of letting go whatever that meant it didn't it just did, didn't make any sense you know how could you let go of everything i mean especially you know when hanging on is what uh you know got me to any measure of success how does one let go and expect anything to come from that and the the teaching kind of revealed itself slowly over time as being something that it wasn't it it didn't it didn't you know splash it was it was kind of a it was kind of a trickle and i started to recognize through these marvelous teachers and this you know marvelous set of circumstances that these causes and conditions in my life were kind of pushing me towards a recognition that i was not in charge when I, mean, i was in charge in a lot of ways but that i wasn't fully in control that i couldn't do everything that everything wasn't up to me no matter how hard i seemed to try chaos ruled entropy always trumped order <laughs> uh and so i at some point um you know this teaching of you know let go let go just just let go um began to become the only option <laughs> the only option that uh, existed as any of us starts to recognize that we can't manage everything we can't control everything it really is all that's left it's like okay well if i can't control everything how do i live how do i participate as fully as possible with as little of me as there can be in the process now this this here again we we get into this sticky space especially for people as they're beginning their practice it's like wait a minute i am valuable my second grade teacher told me in fact the whole problem is that there isn't enough self esteem we need more self esteem more self and then everything's better Well to a degree for a second grader this is awesome giving them a dose of uh, uh, you know support when it comes to self esteem of course we can overdo that all right nothing worse than seeing a uh, a young person who begins to recognize that oh my god all that work on my self esteem uh, has led me into a space of questioning my very competence now that the real world is staring at me and i can't really stare back with the kind of fire i thought i could uh point i'm trying to make here is that when we start participating and we get out of our own way 
what we're actually doing is we're taking our small self and moving it to the side and letting the big self work through this very body, this very mind. And that's when we become a gift. That's when we become present. That's when we are being as opposed to doing. Tillard uh, de Chardin has said, you know, we are, we are not human beings having spiritual experiences. We are spiritual beings having human experiences. That's not what he said, but it was something like that. Once again, I butchered the quote, so just deal with it. It's a, uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful commentary on what the fundamental reality of our situation is, that we are all spirit in action. We are all God-infused. There is not one part of us that is separate from spirit. And we have to let go in order for this to become the primary reality. We can't see it. God is an abstract. Every one of us has an image of what God looks like, feels like, sounds like, right? And we create this idea of God that is precisely not God. Although, God is even infused in that. Spirit is there too. But we have to let go of our definition of God in order to recognize the true holiness, the sanctity, the sacred that every moment offers. So over time, I started to recognize that this letting go and here again, to use a cliche, a spiritual cliche, letting go and letting God was actually pretty powerful, pretty right on. And that if any of us in these moments of either formal meditation that we do together here, or when you have one of those moments during the day when you can bring your awareness into your body, become aware of your breath, and just kind of relax and open, a little bit right there we are tapping into this major source of an infinite expanse many of you are probably doing it right now you can just let everything be as it is you don't have to work at anything many of you have found that your breath flows on its own that you don't have to work at it that you don't have to work necessarily at being a human being. It's what you already are underneath the doingness of 21st century living. So we begin there. We begin in this space of being. We begin in this space of utter and complete relaxation where we're not reaching after anything nor are we pushing anything away. We're not clinging, we're not avoiding. We just are.
that's letting go. And when we can then take that surrendered space, the consciousness that comes from that surrendered space and bring that consciousness into whatever it is that we are doing, that doing becomes a conscious act of generosity. That's the goal of this work, so to speak. Now let go of that goal. A couple of weeks back, I was questioned, uh, rather, it was cute, it was kind of forcefully uh, questioned about discipline and about this whole idea, you know. I thought, I thought uh, you know, Buddhism uh, was about, you know, being really open to stuff and not really worry, being so worried about rules. And uh, I don't think, uh, first of all, I mean, I guess you could say what we're doing here is Buddhist in its in inspiration and so forth. However, I, I get a little, you know, funky about the labels. Um, the, uh, the idea of non-discipline. Um, I, I haven't met anybody who uh, rebels totally against rules that is utterly obsessed, that isn't utterly obsessed with rules. Just like I've never met an atheist that isn't utterly obsessed with God. All right. Um, the the idea here is that it's not so much that my training or that spiritual work is all about following rules or commandments or precepts or you know whatever, as much as it is about making sure that there is some kind of backbone or spine that is taken into the work. That this stuff doesn't just kind of happen when we are really mushy. That in fact, it's this uprightness, as my teacher used to like to say. It's about being upright in the world. And, I mean, uh, his point was, it is, is evident uh, all the way into your posture. How is it that you carry a sitting practice? Do you, do you just kind of, you know, flop around? Or are you actually right there meeting the world as it is unsupported okay or do you kind of do you really want to lounge do you want to be support well uh, my opinion was that that was taken or can be taken to an extreme that if we obsess too much over what posture you're taking if you're in a full lotus or half lotus or Burmese but I kind of look at that as being you know just a, a, uh, an area you know that's ripe for attachments to, to you know, uh, spring up. But I do think that there is some incredible value in recognizing a commitment to your awakening. You'll find as this commitment unfolds that it is no longer really your awakening, but it is an awakenedness that has always been present within you and you begin to see that it is also within everybody else whether they recognize it or not to do this takes an uprightness it takes an integrity it takes a bit of fire of spine of aspiration and so 
as kind of a you know where I was uh, uh, taking off uh, tonight in, in our in our initial discussion, I was pointing out that uncertainty is the reality. Okay, that chaos does in fact reign. That our ability to not only consciously meet that chaos, but to be able to participate with it in ways that allow for needs to be met, generosity to be expressed, and for yourself and other to be seen and heard, becomes this art we call a life. So how is it that we can actually um, deal with the suffering that can uh, ensue when we look at uh, uh, uncertainty as being the reality, when we see that... uh, uh, that there is this fundamental longing in each of us. Some of you, I'm sure, have already kind of recognized this. There's this fundamental longing towards oneness. That we actually find this dissolution of self that I've kind of talked about before uh, uh, happen, happening in the most beautiful, small ways in our day-to-day For me, it happened yesterday as I was watching my two daughters skip down College Avenue in Berkeley, holding hands, cracking up for no apparent reason. It was just the most beautiful little thing, you know? One of them's got curly hair, the other one's got straight hair. The straight-haired girl was doing this, you know, a little two-year-old flopping her head back and forth, and the other one with the curly hair just cracking up, and they were skipping as this was happening. I was just like, oh. It suddenly was okay that I spent approximately 13 months of my life with an hour and a half of sleep every 24 hours. (laughs) But it's just this... There was no me there. There was just joy, which is the felt sense of oneness. The felt sense of oneness is precisely what we arrive at when we feel love for the beloved. Whether it's a partner or a divine we (laughs) or God herself. Or himself, don't get attached, please. All right? Sexual connectivity. Think about this. Think about the fundamental drives to our being are all about, I mean, we say, oh, it's all about pleasure. Okay, Dr. Freud, maybe. But what is that pleasure experienced as? Oneness, a dissolution of the boundary between self and other. Yeah? And so how is it that we can get there uh, in a, with a deeper kind of um, uh, continuity? That, there is, uh, that, that in other words, there is, there is, that becomes our center of gravity. That becomes our, if you will, our, uh, 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 our normal. That becomes our new normal. Right? And there are uh, three... How do I like to put it? I guess I would say that there are three kind of uh, points of reference that any one of us should be alive to. Number one, there has to be, on some level, when we refer to this uprightness, there has to be an aspiration. We have to want this. We have to want to wake up. 
We have to want to see this, this true nature that everybody tells us is there. All these sages have been telling us, contemporary and ancient, they've, they've all been saying the same thing. And there's something in us that kind of gets into that current and says, uh-huh, yeah, I kind of want this. Well, there's there, uh, all sorts of chances for us to get into that current and then, yeah, no, it's too cold, and then get out, okay? But when it really takes off is when you say, I am not going back to that shore. I am taking this ride. I am taking this ride. Boom. That fire has to kind of be there. Where it's not an egoic negotiation. Well, I'll keep testing. It's where there's actually, there is some point where it's like, I'm all in. Have you noticed how commitments really change your life whenever you commit to something? You commit to, let's say, not drinking. You commit to another person. You commit to no longer being with a person. You commit to whatever it is. When you commit to something, this is where I stand. Life changes. And the minute you do that with spiritual work, the minute you kind of start getting into that, you recognize that fire, that power, okay? It's like, this matters to me. Uh, it really matters. <laughs> the minute you get into that space, all sorts of things begin to uh, fall into place. From that space into place. So that aspiration becomes really important. Secondarily, I would point out, first aspiration, secondarily, appreciation. That there is an appreciation even for the nightmare. That every single one of us in this room and outside of this room has been given this thing called life. And we can do with it what we want. We can screw it up all we want, okay? Or we can take it, uh, take all that screw upness, and turn it into something. Because the cool thing about this teaching this is going to sound kind of Christian salvation or whatever. But the cool thing about this teaching is that it takes you wherever you are, no matter what has happened, what you have done or not done, however guilty you feel or however entitled you may feel, however you feel, it takes you right there. If you have the aspiration and then you can have the appreciation that, damn, I could really take this somewhere. That I that has the aspiration and that I that has the appreciation in that moment sets itself up for, I use this metaphor all the time, still going to use it, walking the plank. It walks its own plank. And it gets to the edge. And it resolves to jump. That's step three, the resolve. Aspiration, the fire, the appreciation, I've got a chance, and the resolve, let's go. And the experience 
that everyone seems to report, I actually haven't heard much variance here, that everyone seems to report back with, the, the, the common thread here is, I jumped, I not only recognized that I didn't fall, but I recognized that I wasn't really even there. That all of this had been a configuration of mind. All of this had been a series of stories that I had strung together that I thought were true, and I was able to kind of see through them. Huh. And there have been book, books and books and books and books written about this. What happens at that dissolution once that resolve is there, supported by an appreciation and an aspiration, once that resolve is there, what's recognized? What's recognized is that oneness that we desire so much to be reconnected with, that home that we wish to come home to, was always already there. We just couldn't see it. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Toto was the great bodhisattva. <laughs> right? We start recognizing, oh my God, there's nothing to fear. There really is nothing to fear. Imagine how your life might change. I've asked this question a great deal. It's a great Dharma question. How might your life change if you knew you had nothing, nothing to fear? What choices would you make now? It sounds better if you say that as Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> what would you do now? Okay, that was stupid, but it just, I don't know why that popped into my head. I just, I could never figure out how he got to be so famous. Edward G. Robinson, I mean, who hires it? Okay, I'm done with that. Edward G. Robinson. I love the podcast until that whole Edward G. Robinson crap. Thinking about these three steps, though, I think can be just a real uh, great way to orient, orient uh, any of us on the map. We can orient ourselves. Where is our aspiration? Do you want this? Think about that. Where is your appreciation? Do you have any? <laughs> Are you appreciative of what you, the potential that you have? Can you tap into that somehow? Can you resolve to really kind of jump in, commit, jump off, risk it. Because if you can have those things in play, all of this stuff begins to unfold. Our freedom, our fearlessness, all begins to kind of unpack itself in our experience and shows up in the most beautiful ways. Even when it's not as cute as two little girls skipping down the street, cracking each other up. Even in the midst of tragedy, you begin to see a certain blessedness to this whole experience. 
we start to see everything, everything as this opportunity, this great opportunity. Rather than seeing problems, we only see situations. And this is how the world changes. When normal human beings from this beautiful, spacious, normalcy move through the world tapped into this oneness consciously. So I'd enjoy um, hearing some uh, questions if anything came up for anybody. I'm particularly impressed with that little chair. I'm wondering who would have sat in that. That's awesome. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> um, what came up? What came up? Yeah. This isn't actually from our discussion, but mm-hmm. it's just a general question. Sure. Um, well, I guess it ties in a little with our discussion. Um, so, this is only my second time here, so I'm just learning a lot. And um, we had the chance to talk last week. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have two very little girls, and they're very cute. And I find them to be very inspiring in a lot of the same ways. It really makes you just stop. Um, and appreciate a lot and realize that they're not caught up in a lot of the stuff we're caught up in yet. (laughs) Um, But I was speaking with you last week with Michael because my older daughter has discovered what I suppose you might call her fire. (laughs) She's very defiant and there's a lot of really challenging stuff that goes on. Um, So I'm trying to find out how to handle that in the most firm, loving, beneficial way for her and everyone who has to encounter her in the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And in our talk, you were telling me that I need to have her be more scared of me. And I've been struggling all week with how to make sense of this idea. Yeah. Well, more scared... (laughs) I am new to this, and I'm trying very much to be very centered, very firm and loving, but but I know I walked away with the message that she also really needs to fear me more. And... I haven't been able to make sense. Well, what I was, I would just take a lot of steroids and lift <laughs> constantly. I'm you know, now I'm teasing you. I mean, I am firm, but well, the areas may not may so not be in my. Then, then that may, then that <laughs> may not be an appropriate response. But what is where I was trying to lead you? I'm sorry if that was the message you walked away with, because I'm sure that was tripping you out all week. You know, <laughs> I will say that uh, Buddhism is replete, absolutely filled with masters, especially in the Zen tradition, with masters who were absolutely freaky yeah. to their, stu- their students, were utterly petrified of them. Now, that's not the best way to raise a kid. I would argue that's also not the best way to teach. But still, that's been part of the, kind of part of the tradition. What I was trying to get across is that if, if oppositional defiance is coming in from a small child, psychologically, it's coming from a place they're, they're simultaneously testing. Mm-hmm. They're, they are, are feeling typically, not all, all the time, but typically like they're trying to figure out where the boundaries are. Okay? And if they believe that those boundaries are movable, 
they lose a sense of feeling, believe it or not, loved. And so the very clear boundary that doesn't need to be met with anger, but can be met with an awakened ferocity. That's, I think, what you were telling me. Yeah. Then what we're dealing with is a way of saying, I love you enough to make sure that that behavior never happens again. Mm -hmm. And if it does, here's what's going to happen. And they will be sure to test that boundary, and that better happen. Now, this doesn't mean we, uh, you know, fall into, because it's, it's, a, it's a real easy tip to get into kind of an abusive or angry space. Disciplining a kid out of anger, as most of us know in this room, doesn't do much, except screw the kid up more. So it doesn't have to be angry, but it has to be a wall that they cannot climb. They, they realize they can keep adding bricks faster than I can scurry up this wall. Yeah, I've always really felt like sort of limits and consistency mm-hmm. are completely loving. It's like right. um, not, not hard for me to say no in the spirit of training a child to function well in the world. Right. Um, but I just was, you know, I spent the week thinking about how to be <laughs> scary. <laughs> yeah. Was it fun trying to figure out how to be scary? <laughs> I mean, I can be I put very, some fangs on I here. I very firm and very solid, but I thought, am I supposed to be no, no, no. Yeah. Scary, like Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> yeah, no, but to, you, there's a difference between between fearing consequence and fearing the person. Yeah. And if they know that the consistency is there, typically, and you know, I am not telling you anything you probably don't already know or you haven't already read. I mean, the well, books I'm are pretty. Well, trying to reconcile it with this because yeah. it was um, to be defied quite. So, yeah. cautiously by a yeah. seven-year-old can make you... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, can, yeah I, can, I will be calling you, I'm sure, <laughs> and asking you for advice soon. But the, I, I, I also would say that um, please let go of whatever ideas you have about Buddhism. It'll allow it in and out and through a little bit more effectively. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's true. That, that goes back to the idea of letting go. We have these ideas of what enlightenment is or an enlightened person is we have ideas as to what how it shows up in the world we have an idea as to what buddhism is and what it is not and what it says and what it does not say and i would say the more space you can give to those stories the more beautiful the dance is going to be and also uh, the 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 uh, the shorter the, the the i'd say the greater the shortcut is pretty much the way i'd, I'd like to kind of articulate it i don't want to keep mm-hmm. more anymore Except for one other thing I was mm-hmm. going to say that I was thinking about during the week that in the story of the Buddha, mm-hmm. he starts his journey by leaving his home. Mm-hmm. He leaves his wife, he leaves his child, and mm-hmm. he goes for waking. So in a way, it's like never the twain shall meet. You never actually see, I mean... And she, his wife, became his student later. And he was also born, uh, in, let's just put it this way, involved an elephant. And I'm not going anywhere past that. <laughs> I just thought, so, like, in the story, you don't really yeah. see how you can reach awakening and be, like, a householder with your child. That's right. Leaves. Yeah. And that's how he does it. Yeah. I don't want to do that. But <laughs> No, well, and I don't think, I mean, and this group knows what I think of the mythology. Yeah. I think, it, I think mythology is really, really powerful as long as we don't cling to it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I, I mean, I, I've, I've been called all sorts of really nasty names when I said, don't believe everything that you read, mm-hmm. especially in relationship to the Buddha. Um, 
you know, by people who really said, oh, but there's so much value. Of course there's value. But the minute we start hanging on to it as anything other than metaphor is the minute we start clinging to We start creating ideas around it that then get in the way of the teaching. The teaching doesn't find its way through us as, as easily. It's not to discount it. It's not to dishonor it. Yeah. But it's basically to say stories are stories are stories. Mm-hmm. And the more we cling to them or avoid them, is the more they tend to dominate our consciousness as we are trying to get past what the story is pointing to or or actually walking in the direction that the story is pointing to. Instead, what do we do? We just stop at the story. We mistake the story for the truth that it's pointing toward. Yeah. Instead of... I I had a teacher who who she, she told me, she said, it's not what is the poem saying, it's... How is this poem? Right? And I thought that was such an opening because then suddenly Robert Frost became whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. You start, oh my God, that is just beautiful. Right? As opposed to, huh? (laughs) Right? And we can do that, we can do that with any type of spiritual text as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Question about um, fear. Um, I, I've been aware that I've been in the, in the clutches of fear about a circumstance in mm. my life. Um, and after listening to you talk tonight, I realized... I've gone out of my way to try to con- to to control it, to change it. And the situation that's leading yeah, to the fear, or the fear itself. Um, to get control of the situation, so okay. it stops hooking me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I wonder what your you know thoughts were. That do I just you know observe the fear and let it go? Do I go into the fear? Um, Observing the fear is letting go of the fear. Anything else is clinging. So then I'm clinging to the fear because it keeps coming right back and biting me. It's coming back and biting you because you're still hanging on to it. Okay? So here's what we do. When fear arises, okay, whatever it is, it's of some future event. We've immediately gone into time, right? We're afraid of something that hasn't happened yet, but we've created a story that says... This may happen. Well, there's a, there's a lot of concrete proof that that's happening. <laughs> okay. It's not just my fantasy. <laughs> no, no, has it happened yet? The the thing you fear most has it happened yet? It actually, it actually, in fact, has. Okay. It's been a spiral down. So then it's no longer fear. Now it's pain. If it's already happened. Okay. Okay. So then I just go again. Yeah, so you observe the pain. Ask it to dance or what? I always find that uh, asking pain or fear to dance is one of the greatest ways of diffusing their power. Okay? Greatest way into fearlessness is to be there with fear, fully present, ready. Same thing with pain. Mm -hmm. Okay? It does not involve pushing or pulling it. It says, I'm here, I'm available, 
I am not moving. Okay? We find that. What about the part of me that wants to go and kind of strategize? That's ego. That's ego, which needs fear and needs pain in order to survive. Okay? Put another way, ego has to have future and it has to have past. Pain, past, future, fear. It has to have those two spaces to tilt into in order for it to keep moving because it's got to keep moving. And one of the ways it keeps moving is to strategize. The minute it gets still, it's no longer there. The minute somebody becomes totally centered, the top flies off, the roof flies off, and the ground underneath falls away. And what's left? Nothing. Oneness. The oneness you've always wanted the invitation back to. But you realize, oh, it's always there. The minute there is stillness, it's always there. So observing, the observer is totally still. The observer is, at, at, you know, once and forever with that oneness. The observer of the pain is not in pain. The observer of the pain can look at the pain and go, wow, that's a lot of pain. Okay? It can look at the fear and say, wow, that's a lot of fear. It can say, wow, there's so much time involved that there is no now. Wait a minute. Now is me. Here I am. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, what I'm giving you really is a technique as much as it sounds like heady philosophy or something. It's not philosophy. It's it's time. Anything in you that scurries. Yeah. And when you are present, you are a gift. Present equals gift. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the discussion we just had a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. somebody mentioned fear and being afraid of letting go. And I thought, and of course I didn't try to fix it. (laughs) Nice job. (laughs) Not not that this literally, but, um, and I think it's probably something we've said before, but just wanted to clarify. So um, you're talking about letting go and you're talking about observing. Um, and acceptance is another, it's the same thing, isn't it? Sure. It's accepting that fear as just a feeling. Mm-hmm. Like every, you're always feeling something. Have you ever noticed that acceptance is totally still? Acceptance is another way of articulating active witnessing. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting. Right? It's the same. It's just a different... It, it does, it does, because it usually implies that there's a little bit of ego in acceptance, because it's, I accept this. <laughs> right? Which is okay. Which, then that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And the thing that recognizes that okayness is utterly still. So we back, I mean, you can... You can almost experience this as as a as a, a practitioner of just day to day life. When we watch our experience and continually 
bring ourselves back. That's the discipline that we're talking about. The discipline isn't, I mean, when I think discipline and when you think discipline, you may come up with an image of some drill instructor, some martinet that is just, you know, just hammering us or, or whatever, telling us what to do and so forth. That's not the kind of discipline really that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a continual returning home continual returning home to that witnessing awareness here I am am being right just always watching our experience that watching of experience doesn't it's way past acceptance it it's it's fundamental nature is acceptance just like a mirror its fundamental nature is to reflect without effort or judgment it doesn't pick and choose what it will reflect unless you are a vampire, which is scary to children. <laughs> Just a hint, you know. Right? A mirror does not, does not whatever, whatever's in front of it, it's always going to reflect that. And so similarly, we look at this, this acceptance that we bring in. The acceptance or the witnessing of fear is a radical acceptance of fear. And guess what? In that radical acceptance of fear, fear loses its momentum. It loses its strength. And that, then there's this opportunity for a much deeper uh, facility for choosing. We're living presently. We're living in the now. We're not bound by the pain of past or the fear of future. That time is no longer really, you know relevant we can choose to be in that flow or we can choose to watch the flow as the result if we're not in the flow of time we are indeed eternal <laughs>